Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. <clears throat> Hello, Auditorium 2 across the way. You guys look lovely and beautiful and stunning per usual. Uh, if you're watching online, thank you for joining us there. And if you are here and you are visiting with us, we are extra special glad to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship, please go stop by our Welcome Center, which is out in the commons over here near Auditorium 1. We have a team they're ready to serve you and help you in whatever way they can. Also, if you are visiting, on Sunday morning, usually we are preaching and teaching straight through entire books of the Bible. And right now we are slowly but surely studying our way through the New Testament book of John. And John tells us the Jesus story. And as he tells us the Jesus story, this is what he's doing. He's consistently showing us new pictures of Jesus to prove that he is the long-awaited, anointed, and appointed Jewish Messiah that Israel longed for in the Old Testament. And for us, that means he is the hero. He's the unimpeachable king. He is the true Lord of the world. He's the Messiah. And so John paints these portraits of Jesus for us so that we would then believe in him and swear allegiance to him and orient all of life around him. John says these things at the end of his Jesus story in John chapter 20. He writes, these things are written, this is his purpose statement, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, by trusting in him, you might have life in his name. So John wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus, and in doing so, we will experience the kind of life that God wants for us. And right now, <clears throat> we are at a special place in the Jesus story. He's getting ready to get arrested and go to the cross. He just shared this intimate Passover meal with his friends. The Passover was kind of the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar. And for several chapters now, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is teaching them what life with him will be like after he leaves them. And as we have seen, that's actually more confusing than it sounds. And so Charlie and I have talked about how the disciples were in a dense fog that night. We've been, we've been uh, continuing to use kind of that language of, of what they were feeling. <clears throat> so probably for an hour or so that evening, while Jesus was talking, any glimpse of little clarity that they got was immediately followed with a string of question marks. And Charlie did an awesome job last week talking about how you deal with uncertainty in life. Like, how do you live in the fog? How do you live in uncertainty not knowing what's around the corner? And so some of that is still on the table for us today as we think. <clears throat> because Jesus, he's getting ready to close this long section that's often called the upper room discourse. And, and I, I love Jesus so much. He doesn't close with a level of clarity that they probably all want, right? Because he knows in a few days that the cross and resurrection will make the most sense out of everything. And so today we're gonna look and Jesus is gonna close his talk with just enough clarity for them to trust him. And guess what that is? Annoying, right? We want, hey Jesus, we want a little bit more clarity. <clears throat> and so hopefully this is enough for us today so that we can learn to take Jesus a little more in his word and we can learn a little more what it means to depend on him and believe in him because he's the way and the truth and the life and he is the king. And so today we're gonna to do this from John 16. So if you want to get there in your Bibles, that will be good, great, wonderful, awesome, thank you. Take your time and hurry up. John 16, we will get there in a few minutes. <clears throat> I promise. <clears throat> now, um, I, I truly do love it, I promise. Um, <clears throat> and this is, supposed to be, this is supposed to be a little bit funny. But I'm also a big believer that 
Social media can often be a wasteland of propaganda, delusion, and ignorant bloviating and bias, or perhaps a mindless drug to numb, distract, or spoon-feed us blandness in the echo chamber of our own beliefs, resulting in superfluous extremity and a cacophony of reasons that make us wrongly surmise that we're the only one that really understands the world. But despite that, occasionally you can find a nice meme or a nice nice tweet here and there. For example, I saw this on Twitter this past week, and it was one of those things where it's like, oh, sit back in my chair, stroke my chin strap beard, and be like, hmm, I'm going to rethink life a little bit. And this this little line right here, here you go. There's only one thing worse than suffering, and that's not having something worth suffering for. Right? That's one of the things where you're like, oh, shoot, I got to think about stuff now. Like, that's as heavy as it is thoughtful. And I actually think this little, this little tweetable thing, right? I think that that's about all of us. Like we're all chasing after that. We want something bigger than ourselves and we want something that we would not hesitate to suffer for. So as I'm studying our, our, the passage for this week and as I see this little guy on, on Twitter, my mind immediately goes to a very specific story. It's a story of a guy named Polycarp. That's an actual picture of him right there. And one of the reasons that my mind went back to his story, is that Polycarp, you ready for this, was actually discipled by John, like the John who, who wrote the book that we're studying right now. And so that's one of the reasons why my mind rushed off to Polycarp's story. But the main reason I thought about old Polycarp <clears throat> is that he embodies this little proverb. There's only one thing worse than suffering, and that's not having something worth suffering for. And here's how he embodied that. Near the end of the first century, persecution against Jesus followers began to increase exponentially. And Polycarp, he lived and he grew in his faith under all that pressure. By the year 150, there were certain parts of the Roman Empire where Christians were, I'm not kidding, fed to lions for entertainment. Like sans COVID, it's like, you want to go see a movie? And then it was like, hey, let's go watch some Christians get eaten alive. Like that, that was it, right? That was the Roman Empire. Also in certain places of the Roman Empire, Christians were publicly crucified by the dozens as a political stunt to say, hey, if you want to rebel, rebel against Rome and Caesar and the empire, if you want to do that, go ahead. This is what you'll get for that. And so underneath the thumb of the Roman Empire, the oppression and the persecution, on a Friday night in February 155 AD, in the town of Smyrna that John uh, mentions in Revelation, while Polycarp was in his 80s, Roman guards barged into his house, fully armed, ready to take him away. And I love Polycarp. You know what this guy does? He welcomed them in and said, hey, you guys need anything to eat or drink? And he asked his family to like put stuff on the table. Hey, prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I've been reading my Bible, right? So Polycarp does. And then he goes, before you guys take me away, just one more thing. Could you give me one hour to pray? And he's a pastor, so he prayed for two hours. And then after he prayed... These guys who came to get him, after he prayed, they uh, took him away and they brought him before this council. And the actual account of this story actually says that some of the guys who came to get him, they felt really bad when they arrested him because they were like, what a sweet old guy. Like they really liked him. But regardless, they take him to this council where he's made fun of and he's threatened. And they say, hey, all you have to do, all you have to do is swear allegiance to Caesar. All you have to do is say Caesar is Lord and we'll let you go free. But Polycarp wouldn't do it. And so this group of people, this council, these people, they get a little more intense and they get a little more uh, angry. And they're like, revile Christ. Just do it. Deny him. Just reject Jesus. And if you do, or if you don't do that, then we'll, we'll have you killed. And Polycarp calmly replied, 
For 86 years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme the king who has saved me? And with these words, the main dude over the, the council, the Roman governor guy, he loses it. He loses it. He goes, I'm going to have you, I am going to have you thrown to wild animals. He goes, no, no, no. I'm going to have you burned alive. And Polycarp goes, you threaten with a fire that only burns briefly and is then extinguished, but you don't know of the fire of the coming judgment that is reserved for the ungodly. And so if you're going to do it, go right ahead. Do not delay. Do as you wish. So a group of soldiers <clears throat> leads Polycarp to the stake to be burned alive because he wouldn't deny Jesus. And on, on the way, this mob gathers. They're even like bringing wood from their own homes to like add kindling to the fire. And they get everything ready. They take off his clothes. And then they go to nail Polycarp to the stake. But Polycarp says, leave me as I am for the one who enables me to endure the fire will also enable me to remain on the stake without moving, even without the sense of security that you get from the nails. So rather than tie or nail him, they <clears throat> tie him to the stake. And after they bind him, Polycarp looks up to heaven and he prays out loud. O Lord God Almighty, God of all creation, I bless you because you have counted me worthy of this day and hour so that I might receive a place among the martyrs in the cup of your Christ unto the resurrection of eternal life of both the body and soul. Indeed, I praise you and I glorify you through the heavenly high priest, Jesus the Christ, your beloved son, through whom be glory to you both now and for all ages that are to come. Amen. And when he says amen, the people gathered around him lit the fire. Now, the story goes on to say that every year on that date, the church members of Polycarp's church would gather and they would have a feast in memory of his death and they would sing joyfully and they would pray passionately that God would give them the same strength that their pastor had. It's only one thing worse than suffering and that's not having something worth suffering for and when that thing gets thrown at Polycarp, it does not stick. So, <clears throat> When I hear this story, maybe just like the people in his own church, I wanna go, all right, okay, all right. I need that. I need, I need peace like that. I need, the, I need the calm confidence like that. Whatever I have to do to have composure and conviction like that, tell me what it is. I will do it. I have to have it. And probably a lot of us are not gonna like share Polycarp's fate. So then the question becomes, how do I have that kind of composure like in, in everyday life? Like when you go to school and do your job and love your husbands and love your husband and have your friends and, and, and disagree with your brother and try to be normal on social media and drive your Honda Accord and your Odyssey with your two and a half kids. And your, oh, how do you do it? How do you do like resolute tranquility in the doldrums of life? How do you do that? But here's the thing, for Polycarp, it didn't come out of nowhere. He didn't just have that peace at the last second. It developed over time in his soul, deep in his soul. And he had it on his good days, he had it on his bad days, and he had it on his last days. So how do we get there? So, so our question today is, how do we develop trusting and unflinching peace? That's what we need to think about today. And Jesus will help us answer our question in John chapter 16, verses 25 through 
33. So last week, Charlie talked about joy in sorrow, and this week is gonna be similar. We're gonna talk about peace, and we're gonna use polycarp as a metaphor. We're gonna talk about peace in the fire. What does that look like? After I read our passage, I will say the word of God for the people of God. <clears throat> then comes your line, thanks be to God. Make it a really loud one, really grateful one. It's officially Thanksgiving season. So how do we develop trusting and unflinching peace? John 16, 25 to 33. Here we go. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I don't say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I have come from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. <clears throat> His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and we don't, need, uh, we don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now one of the things they tell you in preaching class is never let your illustration be bigger than the main point of your passage. Now, the polycarp, polycarp story is pretty massive, no doubt. <clears throat> I get it, but I'm willing to roll the dice here, and here's why. Because I think we're gonna see that the reason Polycarp had the peace that he had was not just because he knew passages like this in general, but because I think he knew this passage in specific, right? I think I'm gonna try to show you that. <clears throat> also, these words mark the conclusion of the longest teaching section of Jesus in the whole Bible, and notice how he closes the entire section. Look at verse 33. I'm telling you all this so that, so that you may have peace. So one could easily argue that this is the main point. Peace is the main point of all of our sermons for, for the past few months. And because of this, we're gonna spend the majority of our time today unpacking verse 33. And we're gonna also do this because a lot of what happens in 25, verse 25 and following has already been kind of said or hinted at in different ways in the past few chapters. And with all of this, though, I do love the little bit of clarity that his disciples are feeling. Look at verse 29, verse 29. Finally, you're speaking plainly and not in figures of speech. So they're starting to get a glimpse out of the fog just a little bit. They're starting to understand that clarity in the midst of uncertainty and peace in the midst of the fire, both begin and end with knowing that Jesus has come from the Father and that he is the fatherly love of God with us and for us. That's what he talks about in those uh, intervening verses there. So today we're gonna keep pressing on this a little bit from the point of view of verse 33, and here's how we're gonna do it. <clears throat> we're gonna look at three ideas. Look at verse 33, three ideas today. One, in me there's peace. Two, in the world there's tribulation. And three, Take heart, I've overcome the world. So let's look at each of these for a few minutes. First of all, <clears throat> verse 33, I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Now, let me tell you why Jesus is getting ready to 
get arrested and go to the cross is because he has been saying things like this for two or three years now. And when he says, hey, in me there's peace, what he is also subtextually and subliminally saying, and hey, 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 there's no peace in the temple and in the sacrifices and in the priests, there's no peace in the law. There's no peace in, hold, uh, peace in holding up your Jewishness as a badge of honor. And by all means, there's no peace if you politically cuddle up to the Roman Empire so that you'll get persecuted less. Jesus is definitively and clearly and plainly saying there is peace in me. And this is, this is the, if you've been with us, this is the abide language from chapter 15. If you abide in Jesus, that's where the peace is. But also, we can have peace in Jesus because he himself had a perfect kind of peace in his relationship with the Father. The Father loved him. The Father sent him. He was abiding in the Father. He was getting ready to return to the Father. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. I came from the Father, and now I am leaving the world and going back to him. So these kinds of realities imply a relationship of harmony and peace between Jesus and the Father. And watch this. Because of that, in verse 33, Jesus is saying the same kind of closeness and confidence is available to his followers and him as he has with the Father. And this is what he means when he says, in me, you will have peace. Now, I don't know what comes into your brain when you hear the word peace. Um, maybe you just go, ah, yes, peace. The, the absence of war, right? Or, or maybe you, you consciously live through the 70s and you're like, yeah, dude, Woodstock and, and dreadlocks and maybe a, a, a bong or two and woohoo, free love. Like that's just, that's just how you think about peace. Or maybe you think of the modern phrase like inner peace. It's just about like, just you gotta get the Rafiki legs right and you have to do it. And that's just something in here and nothing out there. Like maybe that's how you think about peace. But none of those or things like them, none of those or, or what John thinks when he thinks about peace. That's, that's not how the Bible talks about peace. In, in the Bible, peace, the, the, the old Hebrew word is shalom. It means wholeness, togetherness, oneness, harmony. P peace, shalom, is life the way God intended. It's what Eden felt like in the morning, right? When, when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, shalom is what they experienced. Peace is, is, is relational security, so in 1621 that Charlie did last week, peace is, is the mama who no longer remembers the birth pains because of the joy of holding the new life that she just brought in the world. It's that relational oneness. Peace is Polycarp going, do whatever you have to do. He hasn't failed me yet. 86 years he hasn't failed me, and he's not about to. That's peace in the Bible. And so like the easy, just softball lob pastoral move is, do you have that? Do, do you have that in your life? Or maybe the more specific question is, where do you need that more in your life? Maybe you're dreading the thought of a family Thanksgiving dinner during an election year, and that's laughable because we're not there right now, but you also know that maybe you or maybe somebody else, you're gonna try to meet anger with anger, and you know right now that it's not going to work. And that crushes you. Like, you, this is your family. You, you love them. And all you want is relational calm and simplicity and joy. But there is so much pride there. And the inevitability of that saddens you and is shameful to you. Or maybe you, maybe you have a secret that you're keeping from your wife. And you're trying to hide it financially. And you're trying to hide it emotionally. 
In fact, throughout your days, you drop hints here and there that certain things are certain people's fault because if she ever does find out when she does, then that'll be easier for you to blame other people when you get caught with your secret. And the thing that you're holding on to is preventing you from a bond of peace with her. And you long to have that bond of peace back, but you are also so terrified of the consequences that you will not come forward with it. Or maybe, maybe the reason that you don't sense you don't sense God's peace in your life is because you're trying too hard to do it on your own. Like you walk on eggshells every single day. You are, you are crippled by worry about what he is thinking or what she might feel because of what you said or, or what you posted. And, and people pleasing is a drug to you. You're addicted to it. And you are, you're breaking your back to keep intact some projected identity of yourself that's not even real. And it has painted you into such a corner of fear and anxiety that you are frozen and you don't know what to do. And you've wrongly read, blessed are the peacemakers as blessed are the peacekeepers. And that's not what Jesus said. That's not what he said. So what are you gonna do? Or maybe you hate where you work. Or maybe you don't have work right now. Or maybe there's no peace with your daughter who is doing her own thing. Maybe there's no peace in your body because of a sickness or a pain or an illness. Maybe you're mad at God. Maybe you're mad at the church and there's no peace there. Whatever it is for you, wherever there is a glaring lack of shalom in your life, Jesus' words here are as simple as they are liberating. This is what he says. In me, that's it. In me, there is peace. That means it's available. It's, it's actually possible. It's within reach. And we still exhaust ourselves. We spend our souls trying to do it on our own or find somebody to do it for us. And yet all along, Jesus is saying, trust me, rely on me, depend on me. And Jesus wants this peace for us more than we want it for ourselves. I believe that. And there's a lot of hurdles in the way to this peace. But there's one specific hurdle. There's one catch in verse 33, there's something that stands in the way of having and experiencing that peace, and that's the second idea. First idea, in me there's peace. Second idea, in the world there is tribulation. So let's talk about this for a second. First off, John only uses this word tribulation here in the entire book, and he uses it twice. So in verse 33, in the world you have tribulation, but he also uses it, and Charlie did this last week, back in verse 21. Look at the screens. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, exact same Greek word, for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So this word, anguish, tribulation, it's about pain or pressure or suffering. Uh, sometimes it's translated affliction or trouble. Even when John writes the, the great book of Revelation at the end, he says in chapter one, I, John, am your brother writing to you in the tribulation right now. And he also talks about the great tribulation that is to come. <clears throat> but Jesus' point here, the, the point that Jesus is making that John's recording for us is, is a point of contrast. Jesus is saying, in me there's peace and that is distinct from in the world there's tribulation. That's, that's the point of contrast Jesus is making and this brings our question back into focus because what I'm here to tell you is this is not about peace, just vague peace in your life, just something that you feel deep in your spirit. What we're talking about is how do we have a trusting and unflinching peace as we live in the world that is trying to suffocate the peace that we want? And here's where I want to make sure we define our terms really well. <clears throat> the word in John is not a throwaway term. Excuse me, the word world in John is not a throwaway term. It means something very specific. 
When I was growing up, Southern Baptist preacher's kid, I knew what it meant. I knew that the, the word world and John meant rated our movies, alcohol, uh, cigarettes, sex outside of marriage, and listening to Tom Petty, Rancid, and especially Green Day. And I don't know what, like how you grew up thinking about the world. Um, but maybe here you're like, well, the world just means the people or it means the planet, like globe or sphere. And what I'm telling you is none of those things that John doesn't mean any of those when he uses the word world. The word world, when John uses it, <clears throat> is the broken order of things. It's sinful people putting in place sinful patterns and corrupt systems to try to gain meaning and purpose on their own. It's the Tower of Babel. That's the world when John uses it. And a risky way to, to think about this in English is with English words that end with ism. <clears throat> now, not every time, but often isms are ways that people try to definitively make sense of the world through a system or an ideology. So sometimes people will hold to an ism and be like, oh, this is who I am. And sometimes people will hold to an ism to be like, well, this is who I'm not. Like, at least I'm not like those other people. But either way, these things as ultimate identity markers for followers of Jesus will move you away from peace and not towards it. So I'm gonna give us a few examples. <clears throat> what I want you to do is I want you to think about, I'm gonna to try to poke all the bears. I'm gonna, I want you to think about what your heart does when you hear each of these. Activism, sexism, classism. Patriotism, feminism, nationalism. Alcoholism, Nazism, Catholicism. Calvinism, Arminianism, Libertarianism. Republicanism, capitalism, socialism. And we could talk about each one of those for seven years, right? What I'm saying is none of those things work to give anybody a lasting sense of this is who I am or at least this is who I'm not. None of them work because they represent broken systems and ideologies and not a healing relationship. Jesus is implying here that every system is broken, every empire is flawed, and every ideology not built on the foundation of life with him will only bring pain and tribulation in the long run. That, that, that's, that's what Jesus is saying. And there, were, there are two great evils <clears throat> as we think about Christians and the world. Two great evils. One is when we cozy up to the world and whatever isms we like and the ones we don't to be our source of comfort and calm rather than Jesus. And the other great evil is when actual pressure and persecution comes from the world when we try to run away from it because we're scared of it. When we do that, we operate out of fear and real shalom does not freak out in tough Times. It doesn't freak out if things get hard. And all along, all along, Jesus is saying, in me, there's peace. Polycarp knew it. Do as you wish. The one who enables me to endure the fire will enable me to endure on this stake without moving. And this is the world, even without the sense of security that you get from the nails. So when Jesus says, in me there's peace and in the world there's tribulation, he, look, he is not talking about a peace that you get after you escape some crazy problem. Escapism is not the gospel. It's not in the Bible. He's talking about sanity and suffering, joy and sorrow, and clarity and understanding. And so the first way to answer our question is to understand the quality of the peace that Jesus is offering and the context in which he's offering it. And that's what we've been talking about. And because of that, we can say it like this. Here we go. <clears throat> Gospel peace doesn't run from pain. It reinterprets it. Gospel peace doesn't run from pain. It reinterprets it. Why? Because peace that is lasting is relational and not circumstantial. 
Trusting and following Jesus is not a temporal deal, but tribulation is. So the good news of Jesus offers us a peace that isn't rooted in our feelings, our reputation, our situation, who's in office, or if you're scheduled to be burned alive later in the week. That's, that's the kind of peace being offered to us. And because of that, it allows us to change how we look at everything in the world. It, it allows us to reinterpret how we understand all of life. And because of this, that means that you can have peace before, during, and after your dreaded family Thanksgiving, right? That's what that means. It means that you can have shalom, peace, harmony, the whole journey of coming clean to your wife. It means that through your anxiety of people pleasing, it doesn't have to rule you, but Jesus, you can bow to Jesus and trust his peace to rule over you. It, this is at your job with your kids in your singleness. As you have physical pain, peace is possible. Because of Jesus, we get to reinterpret all of these things as yet fresh new contexts in which we can sense his love and grace and forgiveness and guidance and the hope we have because of him. Now here's the deal. The ultimate reason why peace can do this, why it can reinterpret all of life, is our third point. But I wanna pause before we get to our third point and I wanna just kinda give you a visual of what we have talked about so far and you guys are gonna be blown away by my uh, artistic uh, prowess. I made these in my office this week with a cup and I drew circles around a cup, so here you go. <clears throat> Jesus says, in the world, there it is right there, in the world, and in the world is the place where you have fake peace, real pain, and tribulation. And the pressure we face there sometimes makes peace feel elusive, but Jesus starts the verse with, in me, in Jesus, there's shalom. No matter what the world throws at us, throws at us he, what he's offering will endure because it's relational and not circumstantial. And right now we live in the overlap right there. We live in the blue. Like a woman who has given birth, the anguish still lingers, but the joy and peace are lasting. And the decisive reason that peace is lasting is because of the third idea. In me, there's peace in the world of tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. <laughs> look, 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 this is what that means. That means the green circle is gonna overtake the black one. Tough luck if you're listening on a podcast. That's what that means. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So let's think about this third idea for just a few minutes. <clears throat> The word overcome in verse 33 is special. It's used about 25 times in the New Testament and all but two of them are from John. And this is the only time in John's gospel that he uses the word overcome. That's like underline, highlight, and it's right at the perfect place near the end of Jesus' speech. And here's your fun fact for the day. This is the word uh, Nike, like the shoe, like the sports brand. The word means victory. Um, like the bad guys are defeated. They've been overcome. They've been conquered. And it was originally a military term. And the main way that John uses this word is in the great book of Revelation in the end because the lamb is victorious. And so how is the lamb victorious in Revelation? Well, it's not by <clears throat> violence or force or political oppression, but it's by means of his sacrificial death. Also, watch this. In the Revelation <clears throat> and in John, this is not a random lamb. This is the Passover lamb whose blood is shed for the life of the world. In the face of them rejecting Jesus and bringing pain into God's good world and causing hurt to others, Jesus loves the world so much that he is willing to die for it. That's us. Apart from God's mercy in Christ, we are the world. He is willing to take all the world's evil, all of our evil into himself and offer us 
forgiveness and grace and peace that we don't deserve. And that is why it's not an accident that the last thing, the last thing Jesus says to his friends on Passover night is, take heart, I've overcome the world because he knows what's about to happen. He's acting out. He's the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb. He knows that his cross and resurrection are gonna make everything make sense. And so now we have this final command. Because of that, take heart. Take heart is the way you get the peace. Take heart. This is one of those <laughs> words where you go get different Bible translations and you look it up. Some of them might say, take courage, old King Jimmy, be of good cheer. Isn't that great? That's a fun one. The word is be brave, do the polycarp, have composure and conviction. The word is have hopeful boldness. Why? Jesus overcomes the world. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it, comprehend it, overtake it. This, again, this is not, well, one day in the sweet by and by, we're gonna have peace one day when we're dead and gone, so I'm gonna take heart now so I can have peace then. No, that's no fun. It's right now. It means we can have it right now. That is what Jesus is calling us to. So, take heart. Now, <clears throat> as we're reading John, this is very, very important. Everything that John wants his readers to do, that's us, that's me and you, <clears throat> he wants us to know that Jesus is the archetype of that, the prototype of that. Here's what I mean. Jesus and John, they're not, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. That's what I'm saying. Think about it. Jesus abides in the Father and he bears much fruit. Jesus lived his life, yielded to the helper, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is like the mother who endured the anguish of labor at the cross, bringing life into the world and that gives him joy. Jesus handled the full force of the world's sin and tribulation, and he did so with peace between him and the Father. And within an hour or so in John time, Jesus is about to go take heart. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so this idea that we are supposed to imitate Jesus by obeying Jesus, this is huge in John. This is discipleship. Imitate Jesus by obeying Jesus, even unto death. Watch this. This, this is how Polycarp had unflinching peace. Now, I withheld some, uh, some fun information from you earlier. Not only was Polycarp discipled by John, but it was probably a 20-year relationship, discipleship relationship, friendship thing between John and Polycarp. <clears throat> and the unbelievably high likelihood is that John discipled Polycarp, you ready for this? As he was working on the Gospel of John, at what we call the fourth book in the New Testament. And so the chances are that they would go and sit or they would walk and talk and they would talk about what it means to be like Jesus and follow Jesus and obey Jesus and trust Jesus with the language of John's gospel. In fact, this is just too, too awesome. The name Polycarp in Greek, it's just, it's a, it's a cupcake. It's a, pound word, it's a compound word. It's just two things. Poly means much and carp means fruit. The guy's name is much fruit and John uses that exact word in that, those exact two words in John 15, <clears throat> abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. So there's a chance that Polycarp is his Christian name that John gave to him when he started to really, really pursue and follow Jesus. But here, here it is. One of the most staggering things I noticed as I was looking at Polycarp's story this past week is that when he is told that he is gonna go be burned alive, and I was getting super nerdy on this. I had out my Greek text of the Polycarp story from late in the first or late in the second century. <clears throat> when Polycarp is told that he is going to be burned alive, it says two things, and they're both echoed here in John 16. It says that he was filled with joy, like verse 21, and he was filled with take heart, like verse 33. 
Why would that be the case? Because Polycarp is being just like Jesus and Jesus wants us to be just like him. And so now that lands on our doorstep. Are you filled with joy? Are you filled with take heart so that you might have peace in a world of tribulation? That, that's how you get peace. You take heart. You imitate Jesus by obeying him even to the point of death. Now, um, I don't know all your stories, um, but some of you might be here and, and you know that you don't have a relationship with God because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And maybe the Jesus story and the Polycarp story, they seem a little intense for you. Like, all right, preacher, slow down a little bit. And you're just like, I'm just here to get like a nice spiritual fix. Or, or maybe you just do just enough church and you do just enough Jesus so that you can sleep at night. And you're like, if I'm close to spirituality, I can tell myself that I actually have true spirituality and I don't know where you are. Maybe you go through the motions of faith, but in your heart, you're just eye rolling the whole time. I don't know where you are on that spectrum, but I have a very simple question for you. Do you have anything worth suffering for? Like, do you have anything that is gonna outlast the pain of life? Do you have anything that's gonna give you peace when you stand before God one day? I can promise you this, Jesus is that peace and he wants to give you that peace and he's inviting you to trust him and believe in him. And this is not just a vague, weird spiritual thing. He's talking about real life, a changed life, abundant life right now, forever life with God starting right now. And if you stop trusting yourself or somebody else or your money or your isms and you begin clinging to Jesus and his promises, unwavering peace can be yours. Isn't that so good? And brothers or sisters in Jesus, our Lord specifically tells us the way to know peace and feel peace and spread peace and enjoy peace, and that is to take heart. And I love that this word is only ever from Jesus in the whole New Testament. In Matthew, he tells people, hey, take heart, your sins are forgiven. He, he tells the, the lady who's been sick, he says, take heart, my daughter, your faith has made you well. His disciples are freaking out and he says, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And because Jesus likes to say this, I think he says the same to us today. He says to us, take heart. I know what you're going through more than you do. I know how much it hurts and I am with you. Take heart. I am more compassionate than you are tired and weary. Take heart. There is hope in the middle of and on the other side of the pain that you feel. Take heart. I am with you when you're scared, when you're alone, when you're angry. Take heart. Your past, your reputation, your income, your relationship status, your accolades, your temptations, none of those define you. I define you. I do, and you are mine. Take heart. Your sin is no match for my grace, and I love loving you. Take heart. Sin isn't your master anymore. Death is defeated. Hell doesn't win. Take heart, at the cross, I was separated from the Father so that you could be brought in and belong to his family. Take heart, the kingdom is here, the tomb is empty, new creation has begun. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And, and this peace that we have because of Jesus is so strong that it can withstand and outlast and reinterpret and be humbly confident in the face of any fire that burns around us. And you can't get that anywhere else. And this is a gift like no other. And it's really good news. You got that?
Fellowship Greenville. This is the gospel, that there is peace in the Passover lamb. There is an eternal life of peace to be had and enjoyed by trusting in Jesus as the Christ, the unimpeachable king, the true savior of the world. And I hope you believe that today. We're gonna close a little bit differently this morning. If you would go ahead and put up your Bibles and your notes and your coffee and pens and stuff under your chair, we're gonna go ahead and stand up together and we're gonna read verse 33 out loud together. In fact, let's do it twice so it can sink in. Go ahead and stand up and look at the screens and we will read John 16, 33 together. Here we go. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. One more time. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen.